This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23, follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, the best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. We live again, bro. This has been so much fun, man, to get the squad together on the mic, even though we're scattered all over the place, even internationally, uh, just to, th- that, that, that chemistry that happens when we get on the mic is unbelievable. So I am glad folks get to access this content and um, hope that it is just a teaser for something even more and even better during the Joy and Justice Conference. Absolutely. As you know, we are here on this live podcast-a-thon to advertise to promote the Joy and Justice Conference October 4th and 5th in Chicago, Illinois at the historic Ebenezer Missionary Baptist Church. And you also can go and donate to joyandjustice.com by clicking the drop-down menu and pressing donate. You can also write checks to us, however it is that you want to support the work that we're doing. And this can sponsor someone. This can be maybe I wasn't able to make it, or I'm here and I'm just feeling generous and I just want to go ahead and continue to um, uh, just support the work that's uh, that's happening here at The Witness. So we encourage you to do so. And Jamar, we talked about joy in the first podcast. And so now I think it's important for us to talk about justice. And I have to tell you this story. Recently, I was, it was actually a Sunday, and I was traveling to church. I remember it was really early. So I went and got some coffee, and it was probably like 645. And I was heading to our church building to just kind of pray, get ready, go over my notes, make sure everything was set up. And because it was so early, you know, we we about this wave life. By the way, speaking of waves, Dr. Micah Emerson is like wave gang. <laughs> I didn't notice. If you go to his Facebook page, Dr. Christina put up this, this picture of, of Dr. Micah on a plane. And this brother is spinning like I was like wow okay just side note okay wave game we need to bring him on to talk about his process but I I remember I had my do-rag on and a police cruiser pulled up behind me right Mm. and it was early so there was no traffic on the roads and I was followed for about probably three or four blocks and it was tense like I remember turning a couple of times just to see he was following me. Like I did some like weird turns, <laughs> like you know, that make no sense why you would go this route. Like I went behind and then went back. And I remember thinking to myself, gripping the steering wheel, thinking I got a do-rag on. It's early in the morning. I'm not dressed in church clothes. I haven't changed yet. I cannot get pulled over. I cannot get pulled over. I just remember saying, I cannot get pulled over. I cannot get pulled over. Not that I was like completely in fear, but I was still tense. Like, and I was just like, man, we still dealing with this. And I I remember someone later on asked me this question later on that day. 
and they were talking about the state of churches kind of in our area and other places in America as it relates to justice. And uh, I remember that experience made me say this. I had this moment of weakness where I was like, bro, I kind of given up on what's going on right now. And they were like, really? Like it was, I could tell it like shook them that I said that (laughs) because it was just where I was at, right? I was just in that moment of frustration and anger that I'm just having to adjust my life um, to these realities. I just was like, man, I don't really, I don't really have high expectations for the churches in America to come around on this. Mm. And I just remember in that moment, all the books, all the research, all the all the study, all the preparation in that one moment, it had just discouraged me. And it was like the compound nature of it. It's that we just can't seem to get around it. It's that it's almost like the pervasiveness of social media has led to a discouragement, a heightened sense that, no, we should actually feel despair and discouragement about where we're headed because I don't know if we're actually going to reach that goal. <laughs> you know, not like, oh, we're we not going to see it in our lifetime. No, there are some days I'm like, man, I don't know. Like, this may really be a, okay, when Jesus comes back, that's the thing. Um, I don't know about you. Have you, have you felt that, that discouragement? Because we're, we're supposed to be like leaders in this movement. And it's very easy to say we're always on 10 and we're always pushing for this. And we feel the hope and we feel the joy and justice is coming. But there are some days I don't feel that. That's true. Um, that's real talk. Um, it's been interesting. Like I'm one of the people who is more positive than negative about social media, especially Twitter. But in the past couple of months, I've really struggled because there's been so many disappointments and so many outright blatant human rights abuses that people in general just sort of excuse you know, there, there'll be some people who are cheerleading it and support it. There'll be many of us, including myself sometimes, who just sort of like look at it like, man, that's wild and keep scrolling, right? Um, but for some reason, these past couple of months, it has felt so much more oppressive um, between the ongoing immigration issues, border crisis, uh, the repeated incidents of outright blatant racism, the mass shootings have really gotten to me. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. So many, too many to even count and so much inaction and lack of action. And then it's, it's also uh, the election cycle, which every single day it gets more and more heated because we're coming closer to November, 2020. It yeah. feels overwhelming. And as you know, I have this small little platform as a writer as a podcaster, et cetera, bigger than a lot of other people. But still at the same time, it feels like, what can I as a single individual possibly do about these monumental problems that aren't even just big today? They've been big for decades or, or centuries. What can I do? Right. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I actually want to spend some time because we don't, we don't typically do this in, in the short time that we have left. We don't typically talk about this a ton. Like we've mentioned it a uh, Uh, you know, here and there a little bit occasionally, but man, the border crisis and what's happening at the border is deeply disturbing and troubling. And I know we like to stay in our specific justice silos and 
sometimes I think we play, you know, the oppression Olympics and say, you know, it's, you got to deal with our issues first and their issues next and whatever it may be. And, and I understand all that and where that comes from, but just on a human level, on a moral level, it is, it is outrageous. And some of the things that we've seen over the past few months have been almost an exponential increase in cruel, in cruelty, in cruelty of how people are treated and in callous just dismissal of human concerns, whether it relates to children being separated from uh, their parents, whether it relates to those parents being taken away on, you know, first week of school for the kids or having no place for their kids to go. And whether it's people um, who are facing life-threatening illnesses, who are, their parents are being deported. It's just an astonishing level of cruelty. And sometimes you can get very numb to it. And sometimes we can just see it as yet another thing. And I don't think that we as, you know, a Black Christian collective should neglect um, speaking about what's happening at the border and the human beings and the image bearers um, who are daily being traumatized and re-traumatized by the cruelty of this administration. So I, I think it's important for us to say that because we don't normally say that. And when we talk about justice, I think we're always thinking about one particular thing. Right. Um, I think it's important for us to mention that. I, I, and I got to say, I mean, this is this is very close to me experientially because most of the animus by a certain group of people that's really creating this border crisis, not that we don't need to improve laws and policies, et cetera, et cetera, but we know what's going on right now. Um, most of that animus is being directed toward people of Latin American descent. And that really strikes me because I grew up in a town that is majority minority. And that group, the largest group is Latin American people. And so growing up, signs in my town, downtown, were in Spanish. And on top of that, I went to Catholic grade school. So it was the largest groups were white students and um, Latino and Latina Catholics. So I grew up hearing Spanglish. I grew up uh, hearing full-fledged conversations in Spanish that I had no idea what was going on. Um, and yet, these were, these were just normal people, regular people, other kids, other students. And my close group of friends was as diverse as you can get. We had uh, black, white, brown, you know, and we were just chilling. And I owe so much of who I am today to learning about other cultures and other people, hearing Spanish being spoken on the regular, learning what a quinceanera was, you know, before I was even old enough to, to, to attend parties, you know what I'm saying? Um, having yeah. this, this glimpse into a whole different countries, really, uh, because people would, would, would come generation after generation from similar places. And I can't imagine how impoverished my life would be if I didn't have these brothers and sisters who were Latino and Latina growing up with, and some of them still good friends to this day. So it actually, it just boggles my mind why, why so many people would be so outraged um, hmm. that we live it, in a multicultural world. You know what I'm it, saying? It is justice now, has it become just du jour? Has it become just the, the the in vogue conversation 
Um, are are we are we witnessing the cheapening of justice even as we see the rise of activism and justice across so many spheres? I think there's always a risk for a cheapening of it. We mentioned it on the last perhaps episode. a you know a wokeness so to speak. <laughs> Here we go. Perhaps. Here we go. Perhaps that would be the uh-huh. thing. The great woke debate, round 3,044, whatever. I mean, hey, y'all got those NFL shirts coming out, so I'm, I'm proud of y'all, man. <laughs> That's really going to do it. Different thing, different thing. Um, so, I mean, here, here's the thing. Here's my take on it. It's an improvement over racial reconciliation talk. And so I think from, sure. from at least the mid-90s, you could say even late 80s, up till probably the early 2010s, um, the dominant discourse, especially among Christians, was racial reconciliation. And the emphasis was on getting uh, black and white people, as well as other racial and ethnic groups, together side by side in the same space. And so there would be pulpit swaps, choir swaps, you know, panel discussions, all of these things. And I'm not saying those are bad, but that tended to be the limit. That, that was essentially the scope of the imagination. But then you get tragedies such as the murder of Trayvon Martin uh, and then Mike Brown. And then you can go on and on of these human beings becoming hashtags literally before our very eyes as it's caught on cell phone videos. And then the election, um, all of these things compounded and interacted to say, hey, wait a minute. It's not enough just to talk about racial reconciliation and cross-racial friendships. Like that's not fixing the systemic issues of police brutality and uh, underfunding of, of public schools. And you can go down the list, right? So then we started talking again, particularly in Christian circles about justice. And that's a different conversation because now you are bringing in systems. Now you are bringing in institutions. Now you are talking about racial policies, but Um, but then it gets turned and twisted or it gets sort of uh, commonplace uh, as the discourse becomes more public and more talked about at the same time. I I wouldn't want to go back to where we were. I think this is just part and parcel of the way an entire nation tries to deal with these things. Yeah. And and I think you bring up a good point, especially as it relates to the long-term kind of brewing of these problems, these issues that we see, these moments, these sparks, I think we're focusing way too much on the sparks and not focusing on the root of why these things kind of became a powder keg to begin with. And so I think many of us are focusing on singular instances, which are good to kind of be a kindling moment of intensity for us. But when you think about it, these things are decades in the making, centuries in the making. And so I think it's incumbent upon us for it not to cheapen the discussion of justice to become strategists, to become dreamers, to become long, long-term institutionalized kind of planners, and to think about 50, 60 years from now, to think about the next generation, think about this as a generational work. Um, in a way that I don't think we're, we're doing right now. I think we're thinking about f- institutions that will last for two to three years and will kind of push us a little bit an inch forward rather than slowly building an institution that will last beyond us um, and that will continue. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to become strategists. And there's a sense in which our passion has to become strategic and our passion has to 
actually connect to something. And this doesn't just mean on a national level, because it's cool that we have the Witness Conference and I'm excited about that. It's cool that we have national organizations, but this stuff is animated in, in locale. It's animated locally. It's animated in your city. It's animated in your That's neighborhood. And your community. That's it right there. Yep. And so it's a lot of people that are going to sign up to come to a conference and do their service and don't know their neighbors or don't care about what's happening right in their, their local community. And in a two, three mile radius of your house, there's likely all kinds of systemic concerns. And those systemic concerns kind of uh, are, are there for you to speak to and for you to address. And so I, I think what we don't want is we don't want for these national movements to become vague. And then we go back home and we said we had a great time. But how is that continuing? If we're having a conversation at the conference, are we continuing that conversation in our local community? Because if not, it's like, okay, well, it's great that we did that. It's great that we said that. It's great that we promoted that. But how does that impact my day-to-day life? And how does that influence the people around me? So I think it's now we're getting to this place of, oh, no, you actually have to do something about this. Yes. And if you care about the border, uh, you actually have to welcome the refugees that are in your own city. Do you know that there are refugees? There's probably a Catholic charity in your city that has, whether it's Syrian refugees or people from, from other countries, from other continents, that have come in, they're trying to acclimate and assimilate into, into life and have no clue where to start. No, that's something you can do. It's like, oh, the border, the border, the border. It's like, yeah, the border. Keep talking about it. Actually volunteer, you know, actually do something. And so I think now there's this pressure of we can't speak just vaguely anymore. We have to actually show our work. That's that's actually right on point. Um, it's sort of a transition that I feel like I'm going through because I don't I don't really consider myself an activist. I talk a lot about justice and activism and I try to point to people who are doing the work, but now it's precisely what you said, right? So we really began by bringing attention to these issues, but now we need to actually be part of the solution. And obviously building awareness is part of the solution, but we have to go further. And as you're saying, it's not about the, these you know, specific moments where we get really riled up and then go back to the status quo. Justice is about an attitude and not just an event. Um, the events are important, but you have to string them together. <laughs> it's, about, it's about an entire disposition. And so what I'm contemplating now is what does that look like? What does that look like? And, and, and like you said, the local level is huge. Yes, we absolutely have to pay attention to national news, national headlines, national trends, all of those things. But the fact is we live where we live and we are where we are and we yeah. have to get busy where we are. I think Allie and Aaron talked about something earlier when they were talking about how to incorporate justice within a church context that was so helpful. This idea that Aaron was talking about making it a part of who you are and also Allie talking about the culture of the church. And one of the things that I'm not seeing, and maybe this is your next book, Jamar, but it's how do we, uh, what I'm seeing is it's kind of like that game that you play at, you know, a, a kid's birthday party place um, or like Chuck E. Cheese where you have the little alligators that stick up, you hit one, then another one comes up, you hit that one, another one comes up, you hit that one. Yeah. And so what I'm seeing is we're like police brutality, hit that one, education, hit that one, red line, hit that one, food insecurity, hit that one, finance, hit that one. It's like, it seems like we don't have integration hmm. in a holistic integration of justice 
that is both theological and is practical. And somebody needs to write that book because what I'm hearing is like we have the history and we have the activism and we have um, environmental justice and we have redlining, we have criminal justice system. We have, and it's what does it look like in, in collaboration and in completion? What does that look like on a day-to-day basis? And so I'm not saying that, you know, it's going to be the same for everyone, but I'm seeing a lack of integration in these points. And so it, it's frustrating and then it's frustrating because, you know, there are some people who are partnering with the empire, right? So then we have the partnerships with the <laughs> empire. And then that's frustrating, too, because now we have to check our own folks. And so it's leading to this roller coaster. And I think it's, it's wearing us out and it's tiring us. And so in a sense, more people are talking about justice than ever before in our lifetime. And fewer people are actually making positive inroads in those things that we're talking about. And so it's this weird, like, irony of yeah. the conversation isn't necessarily creating the change that we desire. I'm always a little, I always question, like, where, where are my impressions coming from? Because we yeah. well know that the people doing the work don't actually get as much coverage as they deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we could probably all think of local organizations or local activists that are doing incredible work on a day-to-day basis, and they'll never make a headline, right? It, even though the work they do is is wildly important. So, I, I I often wonder, you know, our are our impressions simply being mediated through the media, which yeah. I know a lot of journalists and reporters and and have great respect for them and they do the best they can with what they've got, but there's no way they can cover everything. Right. So maybe there's a lot more happening than I'm aware of. Um, And I'm pleasantly surprised when I discover something or learn that someone's doing, you know, whatever action in whatever field. Um, But one of the things that you mentioned was just feeling like, there's all these different justice issues. And I know one of the frequent questions people give me and that I have actually is like, what do you focus on? And I think that's where the local context comes in. See, we live in an age with social media and a 24 hour news cycle where you can be aware of absolutely every injustice that, that, that could be imagined, right? Like we, we're aware of human trafficking. We are aware of the exploitation of labor. We are aware of ICE immigration raids, right? But what do you focus on as an individual or, or, or your family or whatever it may be, or your church? That's where your local context comes in, where every place is going to be different. Every place is going to have different issues in a sort of I won't say prioritize, but there's there's urgency, and sometimes the the urgency bounces from one issue to another. Um, but where I live, like bridges are a big thing because we live right next to the Mississippi River, so the state of the bridge is a massive issue, and that's handled uh, a lot of times at at the if not the local level, the state level, um, and and it's never going to hit national attention, right? Uh, public education is a huge thing. The schools are to this day segregated. And one of the things that I think about is there is literally a white flight school in town hmm. and everybody knows it. Yeah. And I'm like, why do we let this exist? Why do we let this persist as is? Has there even been a reckoning with the founding of this school and, and that it was done for racist purposes? And so as we look closer to home, 
those issues of justice, I think, become clearer if we'll have the eyes to see. Yeah, and I, that's really good. And I also think it's important for us to have, you know, this concept of universal principles, which I think we'll talk about a lot at the conference, which is this idea of what is what are what are the universal kind of principles that will apply across all of these practical concerns? Like, what are the things that we should be consistently doing? Like, is there a system systematized process that we've seen that's worked at least in our stream? It may not work in every other stream of opinion or thought, but it's worked in our stream. And, and can we pull on that? And so it's kind of one of those ongoing conversations that, you know, when you see something wrong, you don't have time to necessarily plan it, you know, you just react. Yeah. But at the same time, there must be a long-term vision. And so maybe that's supporting the people who are thinking in that direction. Maybe that's giving to the people who are thinking generationally rather than just the ones who are popular now. And I think our churches have a lot to do because we need a framework for this. We need a theological framework for this. And some of, some of y'all grew up in a tradition where you have one, a theological framework for public justice or social justice. Um, I'm coming out of a context where I'm having to decolonize my theology, deconstruct it for what is actually Christian and what is more cultural than Christian. Yeah. And then reconstruct it with all of these ideas of justice embedded into the foundation. Right. And I would never take for granted. Man, there was a story you may have seen this on uh, the news in yet again, Mississippi, a white lady who owned a flower shop. And I think they do venue rentals for for weddings, refused to serve a black woman because she was. Uh, in an interracial relationship, an interracial relationship in 2019. And she <laughs> said, it's against my Christian beliefs. That's what look, got man, me. Look, let me just say this. Let me <laughs> say this. Y'all talk about Florida. Mississippi is wild. I don't know how, I don't know how y'all talk about us. Mississippi. Look, Panhandle is just South wild. Alabama. So look, I'm just saying y'all, y'all. I know, man. Us. Look, Trust me, I always try to say, well, let's not, you know, exceptionalize Mississippi. There's racism everywhere. But Mississippi works hard <laughs> to, to yeah. give it this reputation. Some people, some people, some people are work hard, working hard to dismantle that reputation and build a new one. But um, in that context, like, like, like she's saying explicitly on video, my refusal to serve this interracial couple is connected to what I believe about Jesus and Christianity. So those kind of things lead me to believe, and this is after just, just, just a couple of weeks after this photo surfaced of University of Mississippi students, all white, posing in front of an Emmett Till marker, marking where his body lynched, was dumped, uh, and, and it's bullet riddled, and they're posing in front of it holding guns. And, I, and, and, I'm, and I'm like, where do these guys go to church? So, so my point is, I never... You got killed for that, too. <laughs> and they mess you up on look, social media for that. Look, but it's true, though. That's it's true. So, no, it's true. It's so I would never take for granted what churches are teaching or not teaching about race and justice. And I think we need a really rich, robust theology and framework for understanding justice, especially as it concerns policies. Right. Yeah. 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 So there is there is a sense of education there um, that is going to need to be filled in. I will I will, you know, before we kind of transition out, 
give people three resources that I, as a pastor, I'm kind of working through that kind of deal with individual, corporate, and then kind of outward facing community, um, if I can. So individual book that I've referenced multiple times, I think is really helpful as we talk about justice um, in a biblical context, but also justice as it relates to, um, you know, the gospel and our frustration and lament is um, Living in Between by Andre Reznor. Uh, I talked about it a thousand times on the podcast. I'm going to say it a thousand and one. Living in Between is a phenomenal book. It wrestles with these things individually. So as you're working through this, and maybe it would lead to, I think sometimes what happens is it leads to a questioning of our faith, but then we don't, we don't, give, we don't give the scholars and we don't give the theologians and we don't give the activists an opportunity to respond. So we just kind of follow the trend. So if this is something, maybe you're struggling with your faith, you're struggling with um, the idea of, man, does God even care about this? Let this book respond to you. Uh, it's scripturally saturated. It's phenomenal. Um, and so this individual, on an individual level, on a corporate church level, it's a book by Barbara Holmes, uh, referenced earlier, actually quoted. It's called Joy Unspeakable. I haven't finished this one yet, so I'm still working through it. The next two I haven't finished. And it talks about you know contemplative practices of the black church and how the black church is actually far more contemplative than we know, but we've kind of associated it with this myth of unreflective joy, this myth of unreflective happiness. And the reality is the black church has done more uh, for contemplative liturgy um, than what the church gives it credit for. And so kind of animating those practices. So Joy Unspeakable by Barbara Holmes, which I'm still working through. And then from a community level, I'm reading Faith-Based Organizing, Mobilizing the Church in Service to the World by Alexia Sabatiera. Um, who is a phenomenal activist. I mean, she stood toe-to-toe with dictators in South America. Um, You know, she's just a powerhouse woman of God. And she has been phenomenal in my understanding of what's happening at the the border. And also was able to go on a tour with her in Tijuana with about 100 people with the Justice Conference. Um, And so we're able to actually go through and see what the church is doing on the ground to um, enhance the lives of migrants and to advocate on their behalf. So Faith Rooted Organizing, that's another one I'm still working through. But yeah, Living in Between by Andre Reznor, Joy Unspeakable by Barbara Holmes, and the Faith Rooted Organizing by Alexia Salvatierra. Those are just practical works. I don't just want to bring up a problem and not talk to you guys about what we're doing, kind of how we're working through it. And Jamar knows a thousand history books, so he could probably give you <laughs> of a hundred there. But what I'm saying is, you know, this is actually giving me kind of a rubric of, okay, this is personal piety, and then this is corporate formation because that's important. How do we form the body and how do we form the people of God and then mobilization to where the church isn't just formed, but the church is put on mission um, to advocate and be in solidarity and mutuality with our neighbors. So just three books for you guys. So I'll just add my little two cents in here. Um, I don't know if they'll all be books. I didn't know we were doing this, so I'm trying no, to. No, no, we just flown, man. We just. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler's always like, "Let's do these three lists, these this five lists," and, and he's already got his ready. And I'm like, "Oh, uh, uh, uh flat footed." Wow, I'm, just, I'm just always trying to try to stay ahead of the curve. Just if, you know, there might be a pastor who's who's watching or, or listening, yeah, and just frustrated, like, "Yeah, I feel the same way, but I don't really know what to do." Or a church member who's like, "What resources do I recommend that are going to kind of be decolonized that aren't just going to." you know, be sitting up here and, and, you know, kind of spouting the same white evangelical talking points. Well, you know, those are tools for you. 
So there's a couple of ways that I can approach this. Let me give you some book recommendations. One is, uh, where do we go from here? Chaos or community by Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, yes. That yes, was, sir. I believe his last book. And in it, he, he dedicates a whole book to pot- plotting a way forward. Um, where do we go from here? It's all in the title and brilliant, really insightful political philosophy um, and activism. He's bringing in uh, his work, not only on racial justice, but also on poverty in there. And so that's just a must read for, for anybody. And it will, will really help shape the way you think about things. Um, another, I learned a lot just from the example of activists and someone who was totally uncompromising in her pursuit of justice was Ella Baker. Uh, she had an organizing yes, life yes. that spanned decades and over 30 different civil rights organizations in various parts of the country. So uh, the best biography I've read of her is by Barbara Ransby. Um, and just look look up her, her biography of Ella Baker. I always, always, always uh, point to Fannie Lou Hamer. There are a couple biographies out about her. Um, but even if you just Google and, and listen to some of her speeches and her testimony in front of the Democratic uh, National Convention, she's, she's an incredible, not just activist, but thinker. I think she's an organic theologian, um, presented a paper on that a, a, a while back, and, and she just has this really sophisticated grasp. And, and so that actually leads into one more suggestion, rereading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, with these ideas of justice in mind. Because for me, that's been, uh, that's been something I had to intentionally cultivate. That, that was not something that was necessarily taught in my church context. And so going back and seeing how much the Bible talks about the poor, how much the Bible talks about unjust scales, how much the Bible talks about nations and rulers uh, oppressing people and how they shouldn't do that. Like it's everywhere such to the extent that, that, that you walk away from a rereading of the Bible with these fresh lenses, understanding that there is no dichotomy between the gospel and justice. That even that framing is a capitulation to white cultural Christianity and, and not biblical categories per se. Um, so, so that's one thing those book recommendations, but in the book, which, which you, you constantly <laughs> mention uh, being a best-selling, even though it's not, but I'd love it if it was. Um, at the end of The Color of Compromise, I talk about the arc of racial justice, and it's an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. And so these books, those are part of the awareness portion, but relationships are important too. And, and especially getting to know people who are in precarious positions. Hmm, yeah. So I think a lot of times we pontificate on people like the poor, but we don't know any poor. We don't people. know nobody poor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We don't. We don't really interact with them. Um, at least not in a meaningful way, right? Or, or if it's across racial lines, we don't really have meaningful relationships with people across racial and cultural lines. Uh, so relationships are critical. And guess what? We got to go out of our way to do it because the way we operate is it's it's rare that it would just sort of happen on its own. And then lastly is the commitment part. And that's really about policy. That's really about digging in and saying, okay, what are the systems and the structures that perpetuate inequality in whatever area that I'm, I'm looking at? And how can I be part of the solution upstream from where the problem occurs, which is typically at the policy level? 
no, that's really helpful. And also, you know, I can't help but mention, like, if someone's like, hey, the Old Testament, I read it, didn't catch, didn't catch it. If you need kind of a decoder, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God by Christopher J. Wright, that'll help you out. You know, nice. that's just something to throw out there always, um, because I think sometimes we're still reading with Western eyes and, and he kind of illuminates certain things that you wouldn't see there. But that's phenomenal, man. Yo, I'm excited about... Um, everything that we talked about today, this was so much fun. We even went overtime, like unexpectedly. Overtime. Um, yeah, after podcast, which we typically have, it's typically like an hour long after we <laughs> recording. We just stopped the recorder. Uh, but we want to continue this at the Joint Justice Conference on October 4th and 5th in Chicago, Illinois, at the historic Ebenezer Missionary Baptist Church. We are excited about what is going to take place there. And once again, this is something that we're doing not only to raise money for the conference, and you can also go to joinjustice.com, click the drop-down menu, and hit the donate button, and you can give your donations there to us. And we we look forward to seeing you in Chicago next month. We're almost a month away. I cannot believe it. Um, Jamar, it's going to be an incredible event. Praise God. And, and thank you all for tuning in. Uh, whenever you listen to this, please lift up this conference in prayer. But also, if you're looking for ways to support justice, um, support this conference. I mean, we're bringing in people who do this for a living, folks who are involved in uh, criminal justice reform, folks who are involved in work in the church, folks who are involved in uh, the crisis at the border. And so uh, the more people who can attend this thing and the more people who can who can get a lot out of it, I think that pushes the ball forward some. Even if you can't make it, you can always donate. Just go to joyandjustice.com. You can also go to thewitnessbcc.com slash donate. And uh, we would love to see you October 4th and 5th in Chicago. We would love it if you would financially support this thing. And we would love it if you prayed for this thing. So there's all kinds of ways you can help. We're doing this for you. We're doing this for our listeners. We've been in business, so to speak, since fall 2011, and it is now fall 2019, and we're doing our very first conference. Uh, the Lord has has been so gracious to faithfully grow uh, the people who access our content, and this is our way of giving a little something back to you, an experience that you'll never forget. It's also a way of us getting all together and meeting one another because we've been building community virtually. Now we want to do it IRL in real life. So come through if you can. <laughs> uh, one last moment of uncle culture to take us out. I love it. Man, Jamar, this has been fun. Shout out to um, Elodie. Shout out to Adam, Keely, Ali Henny, Aaron, James, and also, of course, our fearless award-winning producer, Bo York. You Bo are incredible, York. Bo. We thank you, man. Making it happen. It's been awesome. We'll see you guys soon, hopefully at Joy and Justice, and of course on the next Pass, Pass the Mic. mic. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast, two clergy of different traditions. Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.